y'all heard me coughing a little bit, and after last week's fiasco with all the snot, I came prepared. I came prepared this week. My mother-in-law, as soon as I got in, I, I tried to tell her to, to use the sandwich technique. Tell me something good, then bad, and then end it with something good. I, I got in. She said, all I heard was... <laughs> so, anyways, we're hopefully, hopefully we're past that uh, this week. But I, I, let's, let's say a prayer. Lord, we love you. God, thank you so much uh, for, for this morning. Thank you so much for you. Uh, God, I pray in the name of Jesus that, that what we give you this morning would not be about us. It would not be about what we can get out of it. But God, it would just be an offering up to you, Father. An offering of worship to you. An offering of submission to you. Saying you are, you are worthy. You are worthy, worthy, worthy of all our praise. Of all of our honor. And, and God, all of your glory. God, I pray that you would, uh, you would speak to us this morning in the way that you do, God. That you would, you would speak through me, God. And that, God, I would in no way stand in front of the Scriptures. I, I would not be a hindrance to your word, but I would stand upon their authority behind the cross so that you may receive all the glory. Would you work in this time? Would you fall on this place in a mighty and heavy way? Would you let your glory be seen? It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. We are continuing in our series on the book of Jonah, coming up to breathe. Uh, and so you can go ahead and turn with me to salvation, uh, excuse me, not salvation. You can turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, we're we're going to be going through, we're going to be going through all of Jonah chapter 3 uh, this morning. And, uh, and we titled the service, uh, or the message, excuse me, Salvation Comes from the Lord. Now, have you ever heard something that was so obvious, but... It wasn't until the moment that you heard it that it really clicked. Have you ever been in that situation? Like, you, you know something that just everybody knows, and it's so obvious to everybody else, but for some reason it just never really stuck. It never really clicked for you until this moment when you heard it. Have you been in that situation? I, I've been in that situation several times. I'm, I'm assuming that I, it's just because I'm, I'm a little bit low on the intelligence side. I don't know. But, but here's, here's, a, here's the thing. Uh, one of, these incur- one of these times it happened to me when I was in seminary. And I want to show you how obvious this is, okay? Because I'm going to give you the statement that was said, and I'm going to leave off the last word. I'm going to give you a, a blank to fill, and every one of you in here is going to be able to fill the blank. And, but this, this moment was profound for me. So, so here we go. I'm in seminary. I'm in class, and, and, the, and the professor makes a statement that is less than profound, okay? And he says, the main character of the Bible is... All right, this is the point where you fill it in, okay? Sorry, sorry, sorry. All right, so, so the main character of the Bible is God. That's right. The main character of the Bible is God. But guess what didn't happen? There wasn't a news flash. There wasn't like... God is the main character of the Bible. Guess what? No. I mean, for everybody else in the class, they're like, mm-hmm. But for me... Something profound happened. Something, something clicked for me for the very uh, first time. Is that the Bible, the Bible uh, is not simply or primarily a roadmap for life. The Bible is not just this, this book that we take out and we use it as a tool to get from point A to point B in our life or how to figure out X situation or Y situation in our life. The Bible is not primarily a roadmap for life. The Bible is a story about God. The Bible is a story about God. It's a very unique autobiography, and it details how he interacts with people, and he fulfills his redemption story. And so this whole book is primarily about God. 
And the professor went on a little bit further than that. He didn't just leave us with that one little nugget of truth. But he went, on, he went a little bit further than that. And he went on to explain a little bit what he meant by that. And he said, what I mean is, is God is the main character in every story, in every law, in every lesson, in, in every uh, letter, in every prophecy, and in every poem. God is the main character of Scripture. And sometimes, guys, this is abundantly obvious. Sometimes, this is really, really obvious, we start the Bible with Genesis 1-1 and we say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so, it's pretty obvious at the very beginning of the Bible that the the story is, is initiated by God and we can see God as the main character. But oftentimes, it's much more subtle. Oftentimes, it's much more difficult to realize. If we just go two chapters past that to Genesis chapter 3 and we come to the fall of man and we see the serpent tempting Adam and Eve in order to, to make them fall and, and, and turn them away from God. We, we see this, and all of a sudden we're reading this passage, and we may lose sight that even in the midst of this temptation, in the midst of this story in Genesis chapter 3, God is the main character. The main character is not the serpent. The main character is not Adam and Eve. What we do is we try to apply it to ourselves, and we say, okay, here are the, ro- the modes of temptation. The, the, food was, or the, the fruit was pleasing to the eye. It was, it was good for food, and it, it was uh, profitable for gaining wisdom. And so, so we, we kind of dissect those kind of things, and we say, okay, this is what the passage is about, and this is, this is the modes of temptation. But listen, that's, that is a, a storyline, but it's not the main storyline. God is the main character, and the storyline is man's rebellion against God. We move down a couple more chapters. We get to the flood, and the main character in the flood is not Noah. Noah is not the main character in the flood. And the main story behind the flood is not Noah's blind faith and obedience to God. The main character is God. And the main storyline is that God judges sin. We move down a little bit more. Moses and the Red Sea. We talk about Moses. But the main character in that story is not Moses. And, it, and the storyline is not that we can overcome obstacles. No, no, the main character is God and that he is faithful to his people and to his promises. Last example that I'll give you is David and Goliath, because I think we use this one a whole lot, is that the main character in this story is not David, okay? And, and the main purpose of this story is not that we can overcome the giants in our life, okay? That is not the main character. That is not the main purpose of the story. The main character is God, and the storyline is God establishing the throne of his coming Messiah. He is laying out the work for his redemption story. And so what we do, if we, can, if we can train ourselves to look past just simply looking at the human characters and look to the main character, look to God and find God in the story, it's easier to get a glimpse of what he's trying to do. Now let's take all that information and funnel it into the book of Jonah. Take all that information I just gave you, funnel it into the book of Jonah, and we have, what we have seen is that the first... <coughs> excuse me five weeks that we've been studying this, the first five weeks, we've been focusing a lot of our energy on Jonah. But what's, what's the storyline of the main character in this, in this book? What's the storyline of God in this book? And if we, if we examine this book and we look, we look through it back and forth and try to understand what is God's role in this, what is God's storyline for us in this, we can kind of hone it down to Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is the theme of the entire book of Jonah, and really the, entire, uh, the entirety of Scripture, is that 
Salvation comes from the Lord. Let's, let's just check it out. In, in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, Jonah does what? Jonah runs from God. He gets on a boat. God brings up a large, large storm. And guess what? They say, okay, this isn't going to work. They toss Jonah overboard on, based on God's will. They toss Jonah overboard. And guess what happens? The sea calms. The sailors are saved. And then they make vows. In Jonah 1.16, they make vows to God. They burn a sacrifice and they make vows to God. They give their hearts to God. Salvation comes from the Lord for these sailors. We get to chapter 2. Jonah is now in the water. He is sinking. His head is wrapped up in seaweed. This is not a good thing. God provides a great fish, as Scripture describes it. And this great fish swallows Jonah, spares Jonah, and is inside the belly of this fish for three days as a picture of Jesus Christ's first coming. And then he is spat by God's command back onto dry land by this great fish. And and while he is in this fish, in in Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, he, he makes vows to God, he reconnects with God, he recommits to God, he repents, and then he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. We get to chapter 3, we haven't read it all the way through yet, but this is what's going on in chapter 3, Nineveh is a wicked land, and and. Jonah goes to them and says, in 40 days, you are going to be destroyed by God. They repent. They repent of their sins. The city is spared. And there is a vow made to God of how they are changing their ways and no, no longer doing their evil practices in Jonah 3, 8 through 10. And in verse 10, the scriptures teach us that God looked on them, saw that, looked on them with compassion, saw how they had changed and decided not to destroy them. Salvation comes from the Lord. We get to Jonah chapter 4 and there's a whole bunch of complaining by Jonah. Jonah's just whining about all things. I can't believe you saved them. I can't believe you this fig tree withered i you know i can't believe all this kind of stuff how woe is me and then and then god says in the last verse of all of jonah he points him back to to the ninevites and he says what am i what am i to do with this more than one hundred and twenty thousand people shouldn't i care for them too he's talking about their salvation he's talking about i'm worried about their eternal destiny salvation comes from the lord See, what we see in Jonah chapter 2 is it's at the very end of Jonah chapter 2 that we get to this point where Jonah finally realizes that we're, where the moment clicks. It's something that is very obvious to us, but it took a little while for Jonah to understand. But at the very end of chapter 2, as he is about to be spat back onto the dry ground by a big fish, something clicks. That salvation comes from the Lord. And the truth is, it doesn't click for us until we're saved either. What didn't click for Jonah until he was, he was saved from the raging sea, from certain death. And it doesn't click for us until we are saved from our sins as well. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the truth is, now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your eyes have been opened. The veil has been removed. You were stuck in your sins. You could not save yourself, nor could anyone else pull you up out of the muck and the mire. There was nothing you could do. All you could do was scream at the bottom as you were dying, as you were drowning, and say, God, save me, because I cannot do this myself. And God pulled you up, and then there it was. Salvation comes from the Lord. And as we get to chapter 3, Jonah has realized this truth. And now it's time to apply it. Jonah says, okay, I get it. And I, I, would, I would 
imagine if we, if we did a poll right now, we would raise our hands and say, okay, I get it. Salvation comes from the Lord, but what now? Now that I have this truth, now that this truth has overcome me and changed me from the inside out, what do I do with this truth now? And that's what we get in Jonah chapter 3. And so we're going to read it uh, in sections, but we'll start off in verses 1 and 2. <coughs> Excuse me. Verses 1 and 2, Jonah 3, 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, we, we said last week, if you were here last week, we, we saw that God gave Jonah a second chance. God gave Jonah a fresh start, and our God, through Jesus Christ, is the God who gives second chances. He is the God who gives us fresh starts. Praise God for it. We all need it, all right? But why? Why did he give Jonah that second chance? Now, our natural response is to say what? Love. Love. He loved Jonah. Of course, he loved Jonah. That's the reason he gave him a second chance. Scripture teaches that God desires that no man should perish, but all men should come to repentance. And so this is absolutely true, that God loved Jonah. And God wanted to give Jonah a second chance because Jonah had repented. And he threw his sins as far as the east is from the west. This is all bound up in the love of God. But I have a question for you. What if... What if we were the original readers of this text? What if we were the original readers of this text? That is to say, we didn't have 2,000 years of church history to filter our thoughts through. And we didn't have the cross to use as a hermeneutical tool to help us understand what is happening here in the book of Jonah. Now here's the question, if we are that original audience, the first time it's written, the first time it's spoken, if we are that original audience, does the text actually say that God gave Jonah a second chance because he loved him? Again, I'm not opposed to that idea. I, I, would, I absolutely believe that. I agree with that. I think that's 100% true. But it's not actually what the text says. Here's what the text, or, or before I get to that real quick, here's uh, a couple of experts on the subject. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart in How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth says, A text cannot mean what it never meant. Or to put it in a positive way, the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken. So what does the text actually say? When we get down to it, what does the text actually tell us about God's motives behind saving Jonah? And the only indication that we get from the text behind what God's motives would be in saving Jonah and giving him a second opportunity is found in the very next word of the very next verse. Jonah chapter 3, verse 2, go. Go. The reason that we see in Scripture that God gave Jonah a second chance was that he may go. That is, God saved Jonah in order to use Jonah to save others. God saved Jonah in order to use Jonah to save others. And I want to, I want to tie that to ourselves. God blesses us in order that we may be a blessing to others. You agree with that? God blesses us in order that we may be a blessing to others. We see this throughout Scripture. Uh, why does God comfort us in our troubles? 
I remember when my dad was dying in the hospital. I've shared this with you, but there was never been a time where I felt God more close to me. There's never been a time where I literally felt the warmth of God around me other than in that moment. Why would God comfort me in that trouble? Of course, it's because he loves me. But going forward, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says... Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, and check this out, so that we can comfort those in any trouble, or or those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God comforts us so that we can take that comfort that he has given us and apply it to others. He blesses us that we may be a blessing to others. What about spiritual gifts? We talk about spiritual gifts, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to us when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, that he he enables us to do certain things in a unique and special way through his power within us. And these gifts range all over the table from hospitality and service to to evangelism and preaching and teaching and leadership and and all different kinds of things. It's all over the table. If if you want to remember where the spiritual gifts are, you just got to remember two numbers, 12 and 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians. Ephesians 4 and uh, 1 Peter 4. And, and, and these gifts are all over the board, but we get down to it in 2 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter 4. 2 Peter 4 verse 10 says, each one should use whatever gift he has received. Okay, so we've received a gift. We should use it to do what? To serve others. We have been blessed in order that we may be a blessing. We go, now let's, let's take this a step further. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to let's go back to Abram and God's original call to Abram. And in God's original call to Abram, he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. But then he tells him why. He says in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then check out this last line. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That is that... God is starting this special people, this special nation, this this blessed people through Abram in order that through this special people, all people might be invited to become a part of this special people, of this great nation, the people of God. Now, let me ask you, church, who are the people of God today? The church, that's right, whoever said it. The church are the people of God today. So we as the church must apply this truth to ourselves. Why has God allowed us to be a part of his people? And why has God allowed us to share in the blessing of his salvation story? Is that we may share this story with others. And we may share this story with others. Listen, like Jonah, we have been saved in order that God may use us to to save others. And God gave Jonah a great commission. Verses 2 and 3 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Jonah was commissioned by God and he was given this humongous task. Four times in the book of Jonah, Nineveh is referred to as a great city. So let's find four ways that Nineveh was great. First off, Nineveh was great in size. 
All right. It, it, scripture tells us that it took a three day journey. All right. And there's different ways to translate this, different ways to look at it. But basically, it comes down to two options. It either took three days to get through Nineveh or it took three days to go around Nineveh. And let's take the smaller of these. Let's let's be conservative here and take the smaller of these and say it took three days to go around Nineveh. What that basically means is that the circumference of the city was 60 miles, roughly 60 miles. That, for that time period, was a humongous megaplex, all right? Secondly, it's great in size, but it's also great in citizens. Chapter 4, verse 11 says that there were more than 120,000, so that there were at least 120,000 people in, in Nineveh. And Jonah, how many people was Jonah? One. Okay, so you had one going into at least 120,000, some estimates ranging all the way up to 600,000 people. It was great in citizens. It was great in society. It was settled on two major rivers, one of which was the Tigris, and, and commerce was booming. People were coming through, making trades, selling, and, 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 and commerce and wealth was just over, overflowing. And on top of all that, Assyria had the greatest military force in the world. They were great in society, but finally, and most importantly for our context, they were great in sin. Nineveh was great in sin. They were known for morbid violence. I want to read you this by Warren Wearsby. They impaled live victims on sharp poles, leaving them to roast to death in the desert sun. They beheaded people by the thousands and stacked their skulls up in piles by the city gates. And they even skinned people alive. They respected neither age nor sex and followed a policy of killing babies and young children so they wouldn't have to care for them. These people were morbid in their violence, but they were also wicked in their idolatry. The Assyrians had between 3,000 to 4,000 pagan false gods that they worshipped, which sounds like a ton, and it is a ton, but when you, when you put it in comparison to our Hindu friends over in India, that is less than half of a percent of what they worship over in India. But on top of that, even the city itself, even the city Nineveh itself, <coughs> excuse me, was named after a false god of Ishtar. And so here's what we're looking at. Here's what Jonah's looking at. Jonah's riding solo. He's coming into this city. He's looking around, and he says, Okay, this thing's humongous. I can't even get around this whole thing to tell people about it, okay? Secondly, there's just a ton of people. Where do you even begin? He's third, I'm coming in, in, in face of this great culture, this overwhelming culture of the time, and I'm opposing what they're doing. I'm coming against their sin. And here's what I want to say. God gave Jonah a huge task because he had a huge plan for and through Jonah. God gave Jonah a huge task because he had huge plans for Jonas. Jonah. Here's the reality. God has commissioned you. God has commissioned you. I, 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 I wasn't going to do this, but let's do this. Everybody say this with me. God has commissioned me. One, two, three. God has commissioned me. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Does it say it in Scripture? Do we believe that the Scriptures are true? God has commissioned you. And God has commissioned me. And He has given us a huge task. An overwhelming task. Matthew 28, verse 19, Go and make disciples of all nations. 
This is much greater than Jonah's task. The size is global. The citizens are billions. The societies are multicultural. And the sin is overwhelming. But God has given us such an enormous task because God has enormous plans for us. God has enormous plans for us. But what we do is we separate the two. We separate the two. We say, God has plans for me, but God does not have plans through me. And that's a lie. We should not separate the two. They are not mutually exclusive. What we want to quote all day long and hang it on our, on our mirror in the bathroom and post it on the dashboard of our car is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Praise God for it, but let's not forget God blesses us in order that we may be a blessing to others. You just said you agreed to that a minute ago. So don't back, let, let, let's move forward with that. God blesses us in order to be a blessing to others. And so if God has great plans for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us, plans to give us a hope and a future, he has given us these plans in order that we may share these plans so that God's plans may be used for somebody else. That's the picture. We will better understand God's will for us when we gladly allow him to accomplish his will through us. And in the end, guess what's going to happen, guys? In the end, what's going to happen is you will realize that they were never any different. All along, it was the same thing. God's plans for you and God's plans through you were ultimately the same thing. Because Jonah looked at his... Jonah looked at Nineveh. He said, it's, un, it's not doable. It's not doable, God. 120,000 people, 60 miles around the city. Where, where do I begin? Have you ever been asked to do something that you just knew you couldn't do? <laughs> I, I, I had a friend when I was, when I was a little kid. He, he had moved from Redding, California to DeRitter, Louisiana. And his dad was in the military. And they told me a story that they had gone to a Sacramento Kings basketball game and, and Sacramento was doing some sort of promotion and they had brought their whole family, a family of four, uh, two parents and then a son and a daughter, and, and they had brought their family of four to the ball game and at halftime they were giving away a car or money or some kind of thing and they just said, if we call your, num- or your ticket number, you come down to, to center court. And so they called down, they called the ticket number and, the, and this family looked and they said, that's our ticket. And they looked to see which ticket, who was sitting in which seat. And the little girl, who was about four or five years old, <laughs> was the one in the, in, the, in the seat number they got called. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not holy enough to let my, Carson go take that shot. <laughs> I would have done this. Carson, I love you, buddy. Cheer daddy on. <laughs> I, I would have headed down there. But these people were better than me, I admit. And, and these people went down and they took their little girl, their little four or five-year-old girl, down to center court. And she had to make a center court shot in order to win whatever it was. Everybody in the stands realized real quick, this is not going to happen. This is an impossibility. So, so this is kind of a waste of time. And, and also, the, the guy who happened to be hosting uh, that, that, that evening... He said, okay, this is, this is unfair. And so he allowed this little girl, to, instead of shooting from half court, to move up to the free throw line. And so now the, the, the crowd starts to get into it a little bit. 
Now the crowd starts to believe a little bit. Okay, this could actually happen. This could potentially take place. Here, come on. (laughs) That she could maybe make this shot. Okay? And so, (coughs) excuse me. So she uh, goes up there. The crowd starts getting into it. The crowd starts going crazy. And she leans back and hovers. You know, kids don't shoot like you're supposed to shoot. She throws that ball over her right shoulder. And she gives it everything she has. And that ball goes about three feet. (laughs) And goes about halfway up to the goal. Nowhere close. The reality is she never had a chance. She never had a chance. And here's the reality. Jonah looked at his situation as we much look at our situation of 7 billion people in this world. And we say, there's no way. There's no way. There's, there's nothing. I cannot accomplish this task. Jonah could not accomplish this task. The task was too large. And the only, the only really thing that, that Jonah could bank on, the only thing that Jonah could really cling to was that he was going to die. Going into this city, the only thing that he knew for sure was going to happen was that he was going to die. Because he was coming with a message of doom and destruction to a violent and pagan people that outnumbered him 120,000 at least to one. (laughs) He realized the odds were not in his favor. And the reality is, guys, we can't accomplish our task either. We can't accomplish our task either. The, the challenge is too large. J.D. Greer says, we're not dealing with skeptics who need to be persuaded. We are dealing with dead people who need to be raised to life. When's the last time you raised someone from death to life? It's a, it's a difficult, difficult task. And the only thing that we can really bank on is that it will cost us our lives. We are commanded to go into this world to violent and pagan nations looking at them and saying, your gods are false, my God is real. Your gods bring destruction, and my God brings hope. Yours is fake, mine is legit. What kind of response are we going to get to that message? What does Jesus say? Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. When's the last time you saw a sheep in a wolf fight? Who wins? (laughs) The wolf wins, okay? And so this this whole time, the odds are not in our favor. But here's the thing, guys. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. That salvation comes from the Lord. That's the point. We can try with all our strength, like we saw the sailors trying in chapter 1. We can try with all our strength, like Jonah, I'm sure, tried to swim out of the drink. We can try with all our strength, but salvation comes from the Lord. Let's read verses 4 through 10. It says, On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of the Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he (coughs) had threatened. So picture the scene. Picture the scene. 
Jonah. He's, uh, some people have said he was probably bleached white with the gastric acids of the fish. Okay, the problem with that theory is that it's a month walk from where Jonah was to Nineveh, and if he's still bleached white with the, the gastric acids of the fish, that was some kind of fish. All right? so, so anyways, picture normal Jonah. All right, Jonah like you and me, Jonah. And he walks into this city. And what does he find when he walks into this city? Life. He finds people at work. He finds people at play. He finds people fishing. He finds people working the nets. He finds children. He finds adults. He finds people in their homes. And he finds people on the street. And notice what he does not do. He does not go to the king. He does not go to the place where a proclamation could be made first. He does not go to the place where a central message could be sent out in a 40-day period and everybody could hear about it. He doesn't go there first. He just goes into the town. He just walks into the, the city. And he finds a place where people can hear him. Maybe it's a public square. Maybe he just finds a big rock. I don't know. But he finds a place where people can hear him, and he preaches an eight-word sermon. Man, life would be easy. But (laughs) he preaches an eight-word sermon. In Hebrew, it's only five words. (laughs) And there's probably men in here right now that are like, I wish we had an eight-word sermon. I'll tell you what, if I got the same kind of response Jonah got, you'd get eight-word sermons. (laughs) But here's what he said. Forty more days. And Nineveh will be overturned. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Did you hear the grace of God in that? No. Did you hear of, you need to turn and serve the God of the Hebrews? No. Did you hear anything that we would typically throw into our our, uh, discussion of how we try to ring people in and tell them about Jesus Christ? Do you hear any of those tools being thrown in there? No. Jonah only said what God told him to say, and then God fell on the city. That is my prayer every week. That is my prayer every week before I come into this place. God, fall on this place. Let your glory fall on this place. And here's the beautiful thing, verse 5. They believed God. They believed God. They repented of their sins. And in verse 10, like we've already read, they were saved. Jonah had no special boldness, no special wisdom, no special skill that this city should repent. He said an eight-word sermon that should have cost him his life. But they were God's words. They were God's words. They were filled with God's power. They were filled with God's wisdom. They were filled with God's strength. And God used them to bring life. I love how Warren Wearsby talks about this. He says, The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God can't keep you and the power of God can't use you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So how are we? How are we supposed to take this message of salvation belonging to the Lord? How are we supposed to take this message of God's salvation to 7 billion people around this world? How are we supposed to take this message to a quarter of a billion people in the United States of America? How are we supposed to take this message to a couple million people in the state of Mississippi or several thousand people in the county of Copaya or in the west or a few thousand people in the town of Wesson? And the answer is really, really simple. We speak the message with which 
we have been entrusted. We speak the words of God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So here's the picture. What do we do? What's our part? What is, how do we play? Yes, we are supposed to live a life that validates our message, but the reality is we are supposed to go and share the message, okay? We are supposed to go and share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We are supposed to go with the words that God has given us, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We go with those words. We go with the words that, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear it, people? We go with the words that God has given us, all right? And then we leave it to God. We go with what he's provided us with, and then we leave it to God. We see in, at the end of chapter 3 that the Ninevites had no idea. Chapter 3, verse 9, maybe God will spare us. Maybe God will take care of this. Maybe God won't show up in wrath and destroy us. And here's the reality. We don't know how people are going to respond. We don't know what God's going to do. We don't know how God's going to use our message. But that's not our responsibility. When Paul was addressing the Corinthians, when there were divisions in the church, oh, I'm going to follow Paul. Oh, I'm going to follow Apollos. He says, listen, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's a town in Austria called Feldkirk. During Napoleon's reign over the French, Napoleon's army was at the top of a hill. And Feldkirk, this little town, was at the bottom it was kind of the, the extra, the, the, the cherry on top for, for their, their invasion. And the, and the French army decided that they were going to destroy this little town. The people in the town saw the army at the top of the hill. And so it was a Sunday morning. In fact, it was Easter Sunday morning. And they called a town meeting together in the local church. <coughs> and they said, we, need, we have... Two options, guys. We can go and defend ourselves, or we can raise the white flag of surrender. The preacher interjected at that point. He said, well, there's one more option, guys. He said, how about this? Up to this point, we've been relying on our own strength. And on this morning where we celebrate the strength of God raising our Savior from the dead, how about we rely on His strength? And instead of going out to meet him in battle, and instead of waving the white flag of mercy, how about we ring our own bells and have a church service? Praise God and let God take care of it. I don't know, it's just sitting uh, many years away in history, that sounds like a, a crazy plan. But the people of that town said, okay, let's do that, preacher. We're, we're going to go with you on this one, preacher. And so they rang the, t- the, the church bells and the, the whole community gathered together for church that morning. And after the church service was over, they looked up and the entire army was gone. And they figured out later that when they had rung the church bells, 
that the French army thought the Austrian army had come to protect their people during the middle of the night and were now ready to fight against the French. And they said, it's not worth it, and they got up and they left. Here's the point, guys. We've been given a task that is too great for us. We cannot defeat that army. We are unable to go through with what the plan that God has for us. But praise God, he has not left us alone with it. He comes with us. We ring the bells of God's grace, and then we let him fight the battle for the souls. That's our role, is to be the messenger, to ring those bells, and then allow him, through his Holy Spirit, to do the work. Let's pray together. God, this book is so unique. This book <laughs> talks about our obedience, talks about our disobedience, talks about repentance. But deep in the core of this book is the heart of truth that salvation comes from you and from you alone. It is yours, and it is yours to give away. <coughs> and so, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, for those in here who have never received it, God, that they would call on you in this moment and say, God, I want it. God, I am a sinner. I am veiled. I cannot see my own darkness. But God, you have revealed it to me. And so, God, I turn from it. And I ask you to provide that salvation for me through Jesus Christ, through submitting my life and following him with everything in me. But so many more of us in here have separated God's plan for us from God's plan through us. Lord, help us to realize that there is no distinction. God, that you desire to work through us. And when we don't allow you to, we are in sin. So, Father, when we are in sin, your word tells us to repent. So, God, I pray in this time, Lord, that you would convict us we have taken the greatest gift ever given and held it to ourselves without telling anyone. We've been blessed immensely but have not used it to be a blessing to others. God, I love you. I pray that you would use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.